0: Welcome to our special program series on Accessible World. I'm Curtis Delzer. The date is Tuesday, January 24, 2012. Happy New Year to you all. We are here to commemorate the achievements of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. To introduce our host and our special program this evening, I present Mr. Edwin Cooney.
1: Thank you very much uh, Kurt. Um, I first met, and that word has to be a little qualified, but I first met Mohammed Karim about 11 years ago on eVoice. Uh, we were <clears throat> on, e- on E-Voice on together uh, more or less uh, looking for ladies. He caught a lady, I- I'm still looking. Uh, so he's uh, certainly much more uh, good at that sort of thing than I am, and I am jealous, a little bit anyway. Uh, what came to me immediately about Muhammad was his curiosity. Uh, when, if you ever have the opportunity to meet and chat with Muhammad, you'll find that he's very, 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 very interested in you. Uh, much more interested in you than he is in, in, talk about, in talking about himself. He was born on um, Wednesday, May the 24th, 1967, in Chicago. When he was very young, his uh, mother and father uh, moved to Southern California. Uh, He went to UCLA, graduated with uh, a BS degree in uh, political science. Political science and history are the main things that he's interested in, although he's interested in a lot of other things. Uh, especially religion. That man knows more about religions than, than I ever knew. Actually, he's forgotten more about religions than I have ever known. Uh, his birth name was Irwin um, DeLay. Uh, his name now is, is uh, Muhammad Karim. And that will give you something of an idea as to how deeply he has delved into the history of, of, of his people uh, and uh, how deeply he is concerned about uh, their responsibilities and and, and as well as their, uh, uh, the things that they, they need certainly to function in our society. And Dr. Martin Luther King, of course, was prominent in the pathway of, of, uh, civil rights at the center of it. And he's going to talk about Martin Luther King Jr., the man and the myth. And, um, I expect it's going to be a fascinating talk, because Muhammad really is a fascinating man. So without further ado, it is my pleasure to welcome to Accessible World, Muhammad Karim. I would like to first thank Ed Cooney for
2: that introduction. Uh, It's always good to uh, be introduced by uh, a friend, because uh, you usually uh, are pretty assured that a friend will say nice things about you uh, and not necessarily uh, bring out the negative. <laughs> but it uh, definitely, definitely uh, is a, a, a joy to have had uh, Ed Cooney uh, introduce me. I also want to thank Bob Acosta for granting me an opportunity to speak to you this evening about a topic that you know, is, I believe, quite important because uh, Martin Luther King, Jr. has become uh, a, a a very significant figure in American history uh, for numerous reasons, and one of the main reasons, I think, is because Dr. King exemplifies what America really uh... is all about um, when you think of the things that Dr. King uh... has been prepared to uh, endure in his own life uh... for the advancement of equal rights for all americans you know you have to say this man truly embodies uh... the the essence of american uh, ideals. I mean, uh, here's a man who put his life, uh, the life, the, the lives of his family uh, and so forth, um, um, he made that secondary to the cause for which he devoted uh, 13 years of his life. And so, uh, you know, we have to look at that and we have to say, yes, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. truly uh, uh, lived the type of selfless devotion to, to country that, you know, we as Americans value. Um, I want to kind of just give a, 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 an outline of what I intend to, uh, or how I intend to proceed uh, this evening. Uh, this uh, talk is called Martin Luther King, the Man and the Myth. And what I would like to do is talk informally because sometimes, you know, when you have all of this uh, uh, the stiff formality, uh, when all is said and done, uh, it ends up meaning uh, nothing. So I would like to just talk informally to you, uh, uh, with you tonight. Um, and... Once I complete my remarks, uh, I look forward to comments and any type of questions that you might uh, have uh, pertaining to not only this talk, but you know even pertaining to other aspects of Dr. King's life that I might not deal with uh, in this talk. All people, especially people who have been martyred uh, like Dr. King, uh, have myths that have a tendency to pop up around them and they have and these type of myths are myths that are created not just by you know those who are critics of the subject the the myths also are created uh, by you know those who are supporters of a a martyred uh, personality Uh, of course the the Camelot image that uh, uh, Jacqueline Kennedy uh, Try to uh, create uh, about her, her husband John F. Kennedy, and so forth and so on. And so, you know, it is sometimes hard to separate uh, myth from reality when we look at uh, leaders like Dr. King or well, like you know uh, President Kennedy, uh, men who are in their lifetime in many ways larger than life. You know, this time of year, uh, and I've had this issue happen with me uh, for several years now, I've got an email which purports to tell the truth about Martin Luther King, Jr. And in this email, one of the things that they talk about, one of the things that you read in this email is that... um, Martin Luther King, Jr. was not the real name of Martin Luther King, Jr. <laughs> uh, they try to bring out the fact that, uh, you know, and, and they, they claim in this email that they send out, like I said, every year around this time, his birthday and the holiday uh, and the celebration of his birthday, they say, oh, you know, this is you know, Martin Luther King, Jr., is not his real name. You know, he chose this name to try to make himself look more important than what he actually was. You know, he chose the name of Martin Luther, you know, uh, the well-known Protestant reformer. But that's not the name on his birth certificate. And actually, they're correct about that. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. is not the actual name on his birth certificate. He was born Michael Lewis King on January 15th, 1929 in Atlanta, Georgia. So you might ask, well, where did the Martin Luther come from then? Well, that's still kind of a a thing that's shrouded in controversy, actually. Um, You know, his father gave an interview uh, in the 1950s, Martin Luther King, Sr., who, coincidentally, uh, his real name is Michael Lewis King, Sr., but... uh, you know, I'm sure you guessed that one. Uh, he gave an interview, and in that interview, uh, Mr. King Sr. said that uh, his father, Sr.'s father, gave him the name Martin Luther when he was a child. And he assumed that his father had changed that name on his birth certificate. So he assumed that his name was Martin Luther King Sr. on his birth certificate. And he didn't learn that, that wasn't the case until, you know, a lot later in life. And so when he, when Martin Luther King Jr. was born, he figured, okay, I could give him the name Martin Luther King because my name is Martin Luther King Sr. So, you know, he said that that's what he gave his son. But that the doctor made a mistake and put Michael Lewis King Jr., on his son's birth certificate, and you know, that is the reason why uh, th- the discrepancy exists. Why his birth certificate says Michael Lewis King Jr., um, and he calls himself Martin Luther King Jr. Now, you know, wh- whatever the truth is, I guess it's not really all that significant, uh, but the fact that this email tries to. Um, use that as a topic to discredit Dr. King uh, is ridiculous because of the fact that, you know, this is a situation that, that Martin Luther King Jr. had absolutely no control over. I mean, his father uh, is the one who uh, put the name on the birth well, you know what I mean. The, the father was responsible more for that. So, uh, I just wanted to bring that out because I think that's a, a good starting point, uh, I believe. Uh, to show how those who try to discredit uh, the level or, or the extent to which these individual individuals will go in the attempt to discredit Dr. King, it's just it's, it's incredible sometimes. Um, I want to read to you uh, something from a biography that was written about Martin Luther King um, shortly after his death and. Uh, this quotation from a biography uh, has been used by several other biographers to propagate a myth, a falsehood, about Dr. King. and, and this biographer is uh, a man named Lerone Bennett Jr., who was a very strong supporter of Dr. King. He uh, knew Dr. King. They you know um, I don't know how close they were, but I mean he was definitely uh, familiar. With Dr. King. So here's what he wrote and I want to read verbatim uh, a passage from his biography of Dr. King. Here it is. Young Martin took his Sunday school lessons to heart. Turn the other cheek he was taught every Sunday and young Martin did. His belief in non-violence began at a very young age. When other kids would taunt him Instead of striking back, young Martin would simply walk away. He would never say a cross word, never insult others. Young Martin took his Sunday school lessons very seriously. This is just a uh, brief quotation from a biography by Lerone Bennett Jr. and uh this particular passage, I read it because what it does is it promotes uh, an image of Dr. King that is simply not correct. Uh, he seems to indicate or imply that dr king his whole belief in nonviolence uh, was somehow um, an innate quality that even as a child, he practiced this particular. Uh, belief or this particular um, uh, way of life, uh, and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, if you read uh, his father's autobiography, and the best one to read about it, of course, is uh, his sister Christine, his older sister Christine. Uh, she will tell you that uh, young ML, as they called him, uh, was not a nonviolent child. In fact, quite the opposite uh, was true uh king was a very rambunctious very active very physical child and he had a uh, uh, a pretty explosive temper um according to his sister christine uh when young ml would get angry uh, he uh, would break things in fact she said she he broke several of her dolls when they were growing up (laughs) and uh, there's one incident that she talked about where she said that uh, a young male got angry uh, with her took the telephone receiver knocked her over the head with it and uh, knocked her unconscious and so I'm sorry but that doesn't sound like a uh, a child who turned the other cheek (laughs) as uh, Lerone Bennett uh, points out in his book um but that particular passage from Lerone Bennett has propagated that myth about king over the years now she does say Christine does say that um, as a child uh King uh, did show signs of generous a uh, generous disposition um she tells of a time when uh, she uh needed uh, or wanted some uh, toy but for whatever reason her family uh, wouldn't buy it for her Um, and she said that uh, young ML actually saved up his money from his paper route and bought whatever it was that she wanted and she also tells of a time when there was a a child uh, across the street from the house who whose birthday was coming up, but the family was too poor to um, get the child anything for uh, his birthday. And young ML took his money that he had saved, every single penny of it, and uh, bought this child a present for his birthday uh, and gave it to the family so that the family could present it to the child. So, um, uh, you know, that's a, in my opinion, more well-rounded image perhaps of what uh, Dr. King might have been like as a child, but I brought that up only because, you know, it's just one of the many, many myths around King that, you know, people have a tendency to latch onto. And I just wanted to talk briefly about his childhood uh, because, you know, I think that um, to know a, a person is to uh, have some of an idea of what that childhood might have been like. And you know, um actually the whole idea of nonviolence uh for Martin Luther King was in essence quite a gradual process. Um in nineteen fifty nine he wrote he wrote an article called Pilgrimage to Nonviolence where he talks about how you know nonviolence was a philosophical perspective for him at first at first it was just something that he believed in as a philosophy not necessarily as a way of life and he tells a story about how in 1955 during the montgomery bus boycott that you know a lot of the leaders Uh, were being targeted by many of the uh, Ku Klux Klan leaders and others for their boycotting of the bus system. You know, their homes were bombed, um, they were receiving threatening phone calls, um, uh, things of that nature. And uh, King admitted that he actually went and um, requested and obtained a permit to carry a gun. And he even, he even uh, went and purchased a gun um, for a while. But he says that as the protest went on, and as he thought about the whole idea of nonviolence resistance, he said that nonviolence could not just be a philosophy. Nonviolence was not just really a, a, a philosophical tactic. He said that nonviolence also had to be a way of life because you cannot, at least this is how he reasoned it, you cannot merely believe in nonviolence as a tactic but live differently in your own life. Your life had to be in sync with your philosophical viewpoint. And so for him, nonviolence had to not just become a A tactic to achieve freedom, justice, and equality for black people, but it also had to be a way of life for him so that he could then put that philosophy more sincerely and more um, um, effectively into practice. And so that is how the whole nonviolence thing got started with Dr. King. It, It wasn't something that happened to him as a child. I mean, it just didn't happen that way. Um, nonviolence was, for him, a very gradual thing that he um, accepted for his life. A recent controversy arose as a result of a book that was published um, sometime late last year. Jacqueline Kennedy published uh, well actually her daughter published uh, interviews that Jacqueline Kennedy uh, gave to um, Arthur Schlesinger in early 1964 just months after the death of John F Kennedy her husband and one of the things that caused a lot of controversy in that book is her assertion that she believed that Martin Luther King Jr. was a phony. And many people were surprised to hear her say that Martin Luther King was a phony, a terrible man, a tricky man, uh, he's a horrible man, she didn't like him, so forth and so on. And people were surprised to hear that because of one of the biggest myths that I believe um, still permeates uh, all um, uh, civil rights literature. Um, those who are not very familiar with the history of civil rights, and you know, when you, uh, the, the civil rights movement, and when you, when you uh, watch documentaries on television, and I've done this many, many times, they always paint John F. Kennedy as being a strong proponent of civil rights, Um, that he and Martin Luther King had a very, very close uh, working relationship. And many people, when they heard Jacqueline Kennedy say these words, were just totally floored, because unfortunately many documentaries simply don't do their homework. The truth of the matter is that Martin Luther King and John F. Kennedy had a very, very contentious relationship, Um, and it was not one that really lends itself to to say that they worked as as a partnership. Uh, Both men distrusted the other in all reality. They admired each other. There's no doubting that. I think that John F. Kennedy admired. Uh, Dr. King and uh, I know for a fact that Dr. King admired um, President Kennedy. But let's review the history of Kennedy and King. When uh, John F. Kennedy was running for president uh, in 1960 um, most people in this country had a very very negative view of John F. Kennedy primarily and this is really uh, um, surprising for me to hear this you know in my day and age but at that particular time the majority of people had a problem with John F Kennedy because he was a Catholic and a poll was done that showed that 57 percent probably higher but they said 57% of blacks who were polled said that they would not support John F. Kennedy because he was Catholic. Uh, Both Martin Luther King Jr. and Sr. had a problem with uh, Kennedy's Catholicism. You know, they were both Baptist ministers, and of course, you know, they had their own prejudices about uh, Catholicism. And so they both didn't really trust Uh, John F. Kennedy because of his Catholicism. And John F. Kennedy uh, was not necessarily a strong advocate uh, for civil rights either. Um, Now, in 1960, when John F. Kennedy was, was running for president, he wanted the black vote because he knew that the black vote was a crucial vote for him to win over. And so, what John F. Kennedy attempted to do was to woo uh, some black celebrities. He decided that he, would, you know, latch onto a black celebrity and see if he could get an endorsement from that black celebrity, and that black celebrity might be able to uh, bring the black vote to him. And so the black celebrity that he chose was Jackie Robinson and he pursued uh, Jackie Robinson quite vigorously um, in the early months after his nomination at the convention Uh, I mean Jackie Robinson was very polite to him and things like that but Robinson would not endorse uh, John F Kennedy Uh, At this point, no one really knew what Jackie Robinson's political affiliations were, it seems like, because Jackie Robinson eventually did not endorse John F. Kennedy, but he eventually endorsed Richard Nixon, much to John F. Kennedy's uh, frustration. And so John F. Kennedy wasn't sure how to proceed because – all of the poll data showed that he was really not doing very well as far as getting the black vote was concerned. It just wasn't working for him, not, not, not even close. And so he just didn't know what to do. Well, this is where, I guess, fate kind of stepped in. Martin Luther King, in October of 1960, uh, was arrested uh, for a sit-in that he participated in, in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and during his arrest, um, he had violated a probation that he had had um, for some sort of a traffic, um, traffic uh, situation that happened several months earlier, and so he was given six months in, pr- in state prison in Georgia for his probation violation. Well, um, Dr. King was incarcerated. Um, He was isolated from everyone else. Uh, His family or friends or no one was able to get word to him or get word from him. And so a frantic Coretta Scott King contacted both Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy to see if they could do something uh, to assist her husband. Well, Richard Nixon knew King personally. Uh, during the Eisenhower administration, Nixon had met with Kennedy, outside uh, am with, with Dr. King on several occasions. Uh, they had met, they talked, they liked each other. Um, uh, Nixon truly admired Dr. King, uh, liked him. Uh, Dr. King, in turn, liked Richard Nixon. Uh, he had a intention in, in voting for Richard Nixon, in, uh, voting for Richard Nixon uh, in 1960. He was not going to support Kennedy. He was going to support Nixon. And so, when when um, Kennedy, um, I'm sorry, when King was uh, arrested, and when Coretta Scott King contacted the Nixon and Kennedy camps, Nixon seriously considered and def- and, and definitely wanted to do something about it. Um, Jackie Robinson, in fact, went to Nixon and said, look, you, you really could do a great thing here. You really should contact Coretta Scott King. Uh, you really should try to do something to um, see if you could help with king's uh, release from uh, prison, and Nixon told Jackie Robinson that, that he wanted to do something definitely, but that he felt that if he were to involve himself in this situation, it would look a lot like you know he was trying to grandstand that he was trying to you know um, pander to um a special interest group in order to get votes so he he wouldn't do it even though he really wanted to he just decided that politically it wouldn't be a good idea and I have to tell you that was probably a huge mistake on the part of Richard Nixon because of the fact that Kennedy was doing so bad as far as well uh, you know as far as receiving support in general and getting the black vote in particular just wasn't working for him someone on his staff suggested that he call Coretta Scott King back and you know express his concern for her husband's situation and so he did he called Coretta Scott King and told her you know if there's anything I can do please let me know I'll do whatever I can to help you well the next day he had Robert Kennedy uh, contact the judge uh... in the in in king's uh... case and the judge agreed to give king a two thousand dollar uh... bond for release and so king was was released from uh... from jail as a result of john f kennedy's uh, uh, intervention or intercession or whatever the proper term might be in this instance Now, here's what's kind of interesting about that whole situation. The interesting thing about that is that when the issue broke, Robert Kennedy went before the news media and basically said that, you know, yeah, I made the phone call, but, you know, I didn't, I just made the phone call to inquire on his condition. I didn't make any requests for his release or anything like that. Which is not accurate at all. It's not what happened. But Robert Kennedy, I think, felt like he had to do that, perhaps, so that it would not appear that he was interfering, maybe, in another state's affairs, or perhaps because um, they did not want to anger the South or the Southern votes. So that you know, because Kennedy was really dependent on the South's vote in an attempt to win the presidency. But here's what the can- <laughs> Uh, Here is what I think is kind of interesting about what the what the Kennedys did. Even though Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, publicly denied that he had anything whatsoever to do with Kennedy's release, a uh, King's release from from jail, his campaign then wrote up a whole bunch of flyers detailing the whole affair and how, you know, Kennedy intervened and got King out of jail. And his campaign made all these flyers that was then distributed to black churches around the country. And basically, I believe that this strategy definitely helped Kennedy receive the black vote. Um, And it is, I think fair to say that if it were not for the black vote and if it were not for the fact that he received several fraudulent illegal votes in Chicago and a couple other places, John F. Kennedy would never have become president. Now, of course, King could not endorse uh, John F. Kennedy or anyone else because of his, you know, position, you know, as a, as a civil rights leader. But what he did was he had um, his father to speak to uh, various black publications and make it clear that he was switching his allegiance from Richard Nixon to John F. Kennedy because of Kennedy's efforts on behalf of his son. So that is how that was dealt with so yes it is safe to say that the black vote was very crucial in putting kennedy over the top and making him the 35th president of the united states when kennedy entered the white house on january 20th 1961 several of the civil rights leaders including Dr. King requested to have a private meeting with um, President Kennedy, Um, and he gave each individual leader um, a private meeting, except Dr. King. President Kennedy met with Roy Wilkins, he met with Whitney Young, he met with A. Philip Randolph, but he ignored King's efforts to get a private meeting. In fact, he joked once to one of his uh, aides that to invite Martin Luther King Jr. to the White House would be akin to inviting Karl Marx to the White House. Now, that's an interesting statement. And I think, I thought about it, and I wonder why would JFK make a statement like that? Why would he view inviting Martin Luther King to the White House would be akin to inviting Karl Marx to the White House. And what I think the reason is, uh, is that, you know, I think that John F. Kennedy and even Lyndon Johnson uh, could deal with leaders like Roy Wilkins, uh, leaders like A. Philip Randolph and Whitney Young. Uh, And the reason why is because they engaged in strictly um, legal and lobbying-type tactics. And politicians are kind of used to that type of, uh, you know, action. But Martin Luther King, Jr. represented a new breed of black leadership that they simply did not quite know how to deal with. Yes, Martin Luther King believed in boycotts, and he believed in lobbying, and he believed in legal action, but he also believed in direct action as well. Uh, he also believed that, you know, you, uh, it, you know, if you can't get what you need in the courts, then you should go out and 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 demonstrate and dramatize the situation. And John F. Kennedy felt very uncomfortable with that and he couldn't he couldn't really deal with that um, aspect of it because you know he felt that King was embarrassing his administration embarrassing America abroad by showing to the world the injustices that African-Americans were facing you know he was scheduled to meet with Nikita Khrushchev and he felt that um, you know King's um constant um demonstrations, um the physical violence that was um inflicted upon him and his followers that it it, it it made him look bad in the eyes of the world and, you know, in the eyes of his primary adversary, Nikita Khrushchev. So King King felt quite slighted, uh by the Kennedys, by uh you know, their refusal to grant him a um a meeting, um, a private meeting, uh, the way he granted the other civil rights leaders. And uh, um, it, 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 it only deep, deepened the rift uh, between the two men. And uh, also, of course, uh, Robert Kennedy was very upset because he felt that the king people were not understanding that their sit-ins and freedom rides and things like that was causing no end of trouble for the Justice Department. So the, you know, these were the factors, I think, that really uh, caused a lot of the the, the um, conflicts that existed uh, between the Kennedys. I mean, King began to feel that Kennedy merely used him as a tool to get the black vote in order to become president. And he felt used and exploited and and he felt very angry uh, with JFK as a result of that. And he also felt that once JFK got the presidency, um, his interest in civil rights faded. Uh, He talked about how in 1961 and 62 and in 63 uh... john f kennedy made absolutely no mention of civil rights and, 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 any, and any of his three state of the union addresses and it was also pointed out how the state department i'm sorry the um... justice department refused to really helped defend the black uh sit-in people and the freedom riders when they were being brutalized by by mobs. You know, they were being beaten and, and things of that nature. And the Justice Department did nothing but tell King and his followers to uh cool it. You know, stop it. You know, stop the freedom ride. Stop the you know, stop the sit ins. That's not the way to go, you know. Another problem that existed between, um, and and I think this is why John F. Kennedy felt a little nervous about King, is because he was getting reports from J. Edgar Hoover that King had two close friends who were affiliated with the Communist Party, Stanley Leverson and Jack O'Dell. Kennedy felt that Martin Luther King was being influenced and manipulated by the Communist Party. And like I said, it's because of information that was given to him by uh, by J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI. And Kennedy felt very, very upset that Dr. King would not heed his warnings and get rid of these individuals. Uh, King eventually... So came to the pressure and fired Jack Odell and ch- basically uh, tried to give the impression that he got rid of Stanley Leverson, but um, they knew that King still dealt with Stanley Leverson, uh, and they just felt that the, the Kennedys felt that Kennedy was uh, that King was just being exploited and used by the communists, and so. Uh, that, that just caused a, a, a big rift, a really serious rift and a real serious problem and a real serious concern, a real serious concern on the part of JFK. For his part, Dr. King felt angry that JFK was trying to dictate to him uh, who he could have as his advisors, or who could tell him, you know, who he could deal with or who he should deal with and things like that. And King resented JFK's intrusion or attempted intrusion uh, into the internal affairs of his organization. Now, the interesting thing about some of this is this. At the time, um no one could present hardcore concrete evidence that these two men were actually involved with the Communist Party and because they could not give King concrete evidence of it um, King did not feel comfortable uh, pushing these men out of his organization the way he had to do uh, because he had no concrete evidence no concrete evidence was provided to him now Interestingly, within recent years, over the past few years, um, files have been opened up and, and it has been proven that uh, Hoover was correct, that these men did have um, communist affiliations. Uh, but I don't think that Ordell, or Levison for that matter, were really trying to make King um, a communist or push the movement in a communistic um, uh, way. I just think that these men were just, you know, radicals who believed in uh, um, justice for all, and uh, that's it. But because, you know, America was still at the end of the Cold War, uh, Americans still feared communism, and so it kind of, the whole thing was, uh, I guess, a product of its time. Is what I guess I could say about that. King also resented the fact that Robert Kennedy um, signed off on the FBI's desire to monitor King. Uh, K- King felt very upset that the Kennedys would go along with uh, the wiretaps and other such things that J. Edgar Hoover was... Uh, initiating against against King. Now, I don't think Robert Kennedy or the Kennedys knew the extent of Hoover's treachery, but I think that the fact that they were even willing to go along with it um, really caused a great deal of anger uh, and consternation on the part of Dr. King and his aides. I want to conclude the um, segment I'm discussing on the Kennedy-King relationship with this statement. You know, the final sad part about the whole Kennedy-King relationship was what happened after Kennedy's assassination. At Kennedy's funeral, all the other civil rights leaders were invited to the funeral as official guests. King was not invited as an official guest. And this slight, I think, prompted King to do some of the things that were very uh, uncharacteristic, I think, of the type of person that King uh, was. But Jacqueline Kennedy in, her, in uh, her interviews with Arthur Schlesinger tells how King um, were, was making all sorts of jokes about uh, John F. Kennedy's funeral, um, how he accused the priests who officiated um, as being drunk, and how he laughed and joked with his aides about how they almost dropped John F. Kennedy's coffin. Uh, and Andrew Young, King's closest aide, actually confirmed that uh, that this did happen, that King did make these type of crude jokes uh, about Don F. Kennedy's funeral. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, like I said, um, King felt used by Kennedy. Uh, he felt that Kennedy used him to become president. Uh, he felt that um, once Kennedy became president, that it took him two-and-a-half years to um, propose uh, civil rights legislation and that his Justice Department did little to nothing to protect uh, the movement people from being brutalized by, um, by white mobs in Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, and other places. So, I think that is what contributed to King's um, uncharacteristically insensitive comments about John F. Kennedy's funeral, um, because I think he felt these feelings of, uh, of resentment <clears throat> and uh, things like that. I have one last thing that I would like to say before I conclude my lecture tonight. You know, one of the things that I have found the most frustrating is what I call the ideologically-based distortion of Dr. King's legacy. A couple of years ago, on August 28, 2010, the well-known conservative commentator and talk show host, Glenn Beck, held a rally in Washington, D.C., um, in an attempt to, I guess, recapture the essence of the March on Washington in 1963 that Dr. King participated in. In fact, uh, you know, it was held on the exact date of the March on Washington in 1963 for that express purpose. And one of the things that Beck, Glenn Beck, constantly said was that they were trying to explain Martin Luther King for who he actually was, that Martin Luther King was a man who opposed affirmative action, would have oppo- opposed affirmative action. Martin Luther King is a man who would op- would have opposed p- political correctness. Uh, Martin Luther King was a man who would have opposed multisum, and at this rally, speaker after speaker after speaker who talked about Martin Luther King, Jr. always quoted from the same speech and basically 34 words from that particular speech. I'm talking about Dr. King's famous I Have a Dream speech. And the quotation, the 34 words that is used Not just by Glenn Beck and those who were uh, at that rally, but by almost every single conservative that I have read uh, who talks about King and who tries to use King to uh, justify their ideologically based opposition to affirmative action. They all quote from I Have a Dream and they all quote the same 34 words. What were those words? I have a dream that one day my four little daughters will live in a land where they will be judged not by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. Those 34 words are the words that conservatives have based their belief that A Martin Luther King was a Republican and B, that Martin Luther King would have opposed uh, the current civil rights movement as it currently stands as far as the affirmative action and multiculturalism and things like that. And I think it's quite, uh, well, in a way, if it wasn't so serious, it would be quite humorous that you would take 34 words out of the hundreds of thousands of words spoken by an individual and use those thirty-four words to sum up that individual's legacy. And you know, you know, Dr. King anyone who's ever read uh a lot of Dr. King will know that you can't really capsulize Dr. King's thinking. Uh he was too broad, too um Profound a thinker for that. And, you know, one writer, one uh, uh, one uh, Dr. King scholar, suggested that there be a 10 year moratorium on the I Have a Dream speech. That, you know, we not be allowed to read it, hear it, or quote from it, or anything else for 10 years. Now, I know that might sound preposterous. But the point that he was trying to make, I believe, is a pretty good one because that speech has been and is being totally distorted by those who oppose affirmative action and those who oppose um, multiculturalism in order to try to say that Dr. King was against these type of – these programs. And the truth of the matter is that if you read the other words of Dr. King, you would see that that's simply not the case. Dr. King did support the idea of affirmative action, even though it did not come into existence until after his death. But if you read his writings, you will see that he definitely supported the idea of affirmative action. Uh, He wrote an article Uh, which was published after his death, actually, in which he talked about his trip to India. And his delegation met with Prime Minister Nehru of India. And Prime Minister Nehru talked to the group about how India was making an attempt to correct the wrongs committed against the untouchable, Cast in India and how they were given uh, preferential. Um, I guess, I don't know if the term is preferential treatment or uh, I, I guess you'd call it. Um, I guess you'd call it preferential treatment. I guess or you know preferential treatment in the area of you know entering universities and other such things. In essence, their version of affirmative action. And someone in King's delegation said, wait a moment, isn't that discriminatory? Isn't that discriminating against other Indians? You know, the Brahmins or whatever. And Nehru said, well, yes, I guess it is, but we have to do something to correct the wrong that we committed against the untouchables for a long long time. After relating that story, Dr. King then went on to say that such a program should be considered toward the American negro. He said, "America for hundreds of years has done a, has done special things against the negro. Now it's time for America to do something special for the Negro. And so, you know, for people like Glenn Beck to make the comment, and and not just Glenn Beck, you know, um, uh, Shelby Steele, um, Armstrong Williams, and others, for them to make the comments that King would have opposed affirmative action simply does not square with a lot of his writings. And unfortunately, I don't have a lot of time left to go into that. Uh, Perhaps um, that could be a subject of another talk some other time or something. I don't know. But I just want to say that King supported the idea of affirmative action. King supported the idea of multiculturalism because he himself said that there is beauty in diversity. Um, And so I just had to at least bring that up even though I could not go into depth about it, um, like I said, due to time constraints. And that is why I think that it is important, it is very important for us to understand who King really was. It is important for us to understand what King really stood for. And oftentimes it's hard to know these type of things because of the um, what I call the, Culture war that is so prevalent in American society, and everyone is trying to, you know, find a way to uh, latch on to King and to justify their particular ideology, um, you know, and they try to use King to, I guess, legitimize their uh, ideological perspectives. The reality is that the Martin Luther King of 1963 in the I Have a Dream speech was not the same Martin Luther King of April 4th, 1968 when he was assassinated. Uh, Dr. King had seriously uh, evolved in his thinking. His thinking about race relations, his thinking about the economic disparities that existed between rich and poor in american society. And i guess the best way to illustrate that is you know in 19 uh 63 martin luther king said that he believed very strongly that the overwhelming majority of white americans were committed to racial justice. He talked about how he was thoroughly moved and and thoroughly um, uh, surprised at the number of whites that were willing to come to the South and put their lives on the line in order to assist African Americans in achieving uh, freedom and justice in the South. But then King went on to say that once he decided That he was going to move his campaign from the South to the North. And when he went to Chicago um, in uh, 1965 and 66 in an attempt to um, dramatize the condition of African Americans of the North, he said that it was then that many of his ideas began to change because the same whites who were willing to go down to the South and put their life on the line for um, African-Americans in the South were the very same type of whites who threw bricks and bottles and and other such things at blacks when they tried to integrate uh, a city in Chicago called Cicero. And in fact he said that he was shocked to see that type of a reaction. That he was shocked to see that the whites of the North were, in his words, more vicious in their anti-Negro attitude than the whites of the South. And he, was, he said he was totally shocked. And this was the thing, I believe, that radicalized Martin Luther King. And he moved from the belief system that he believed that the overwhelming majority of whites in America believed in racial justice, to eventually acknowledging that he believed that only a small fraction of white Americans were truly devoted to racial justice. In fact, according to King, he believed that the only fraction of Americans that were really truly uh, devoted to the idea of racial justice, he said, were white college students. In his own words, I came to realize that wo- that most Amer- most white Americans were unconscious racists, or are unconscious racists. And so I think that it has to be understood that King's thinking evolved and not only did it evolve of course uh, on the racial front but it also involved evolved on the um, political front as well. you know at a time when most of the established civil rights leaders were afraid to speak up against the Vietnam War, Martin Luther King spoke up and adamantly opposed the Vietnam War. And by doing so, of course, he alienated Lyndon Johnson, who many believed were was the black man's best friend in the area of civil rights. But King was willing to take that stand because, as he put it, it was morally correct to do. Uh, he had to oppose. Well, actually, I think that the way he put it was quite eloquent. He said... When I saw Negroes rioting in Watts, and Detroit, and in other cities around the country, I would go and talk to these Negroes and tell them that this is not the way to solve your problems. I would strongly condemn their violence. But then, as I began to look around me and to see the violence that was being committed by the United States in Vietnam and elsewhere in the world. I realized that I could no longer open my mouth and criticize poor black men who uh, who might throw Molotov cocktails and commit other acts of violence. I can't do that without first having criticized and spoken up against the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. And so you see, this shows a man who had the courage and the ability to rethink previously held perspectives, previously held views, and to change those views accordingly, and also had the courage to actually uh, alienate. Uh, a good friend of the civil rights movement, Lyndon Johnson, and King suffered tremendously as a result of that, because of his speaking up against the Vietnam War, because of his, because of his um, evolving view that the primary problem in America was really not necessarily race, but economic disparity between the rich and the poor. Because King began to, to say these type of things and to speak up on these kind of things, he became dangerous. Uh, many of those who used to praise King turned on him. Um, Roy Wilkins and A. Philip Randolph, well, I, let me back up. I, I'm not sure about A. Philip Randolph, but I know Roy Wilkins and Whitney Young publicly condemned King for his willingness to merge the civil rights struggle with the peace struggle. Uh, Roy Wilkins basically said that King was, quote, venturing into territory that he knows nothing about and that he's doing great harm to the cause of the Negro and the civil rights movement. Now, in his autobiography written just a few months before his death in 1981, Roy Wilkins tried to minimize that, but that's what he did back in 1967. He adamantly condemned King, and other civil rights leaders condemned King for his, uh, his Poor People's March. They said that for him to try to unite blacks and whites together to protest poverty was taking the civil rights movement in a direction that would harm uh, Negroes, because it would anger, and it did anger Lyndon Johnson, and it alienated Lyndon Johnson from King anyway, but King had the courage to do it. Uh, I admire him for that, and I think we all have to kind of admire Dr. King for his willingness to take a stand uh, like that. I'm going to conclude by saying this. Everyone should read the writings of Dr. King, and everyone should study the life of Dr. King, because by doing so, we can learn, really, truly learn, what true humility is all about. You know, King was a very humble man. He had no desire for leadership. King wanted merely to preach for a couple of years, and then he wanted to teach theology at, a, at an institution, at a, a university or something like that. He was forced into the leadership. He was reluctant, very reluctant to get into the leadership. And throughout his whole 13 years in leadership, um, he was very, very um, reluctant. He was not very, it it was not something that he, he did not desire, fame and fortune. A very humble man. And so that's one of the reasons why I personally have a lot of admiration for Dr. King. And like I said, because of time constraints, I wasn't able to um, say a lot of the things that I wanted to say. And also, truthfully, uh, I'm getting over a cold (laughs) and uh, not feeling the best. But I I wanted to address at least some of my concerns as far as Dr. King was concerned. And I um, hope that um, you enjoyed my talk tonight, and I look forward to any discussion or questions uh, that you might have pertaining to my talk. Thank you very much for listening.
1: Well, I guess I'm going to start out in saying that I'm very, 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 very pleased with this uh, presentation. Uh, I think the informality of it uh, gives it a a dignity, uh, gave it a dignity. Um, I'm tremendously impressed with with your presentation, Mohammed, uh, I'm going to start out the questioning. I, I hope that others will follow me. Um, one of the questions, I guess, that I have for you concerns another one of your heroes, and I know you you knew I was going to do this. Uh, Martin Luther King not only uh, faced pressure, uh, a disdain from, from the Kennedys, uh, but he also... Uh, Invited uh, disdain from other bra- black leaders. I know that one of your heroes uh, is Malcolm X. Uh, did the two ever meet? Did the two ever and and talk about their differences, or were Malcolm X's attacks on King from a distance?
2: Well, actually, <clears throat> the two men only met once, um, for about five minutes. Uh, Dr. King was um, Giving a uh, an interview uh, in Washington D.C., uh, I think it was in May or June of '64, uh, at the height of the civil rights thing, um, they were trying to discuss the passage of the civil rights bill, and um, Malcolm X was also in D.C. And when King walked out of the um, out of the out of his press conference, he ran into Malcolm X. And the two men, you know, shook hands and posed for pictures. And uh, basically, you know, they just, Malcolm X made a joke and said, well, Dr. King, you know, now that we're together um, and they, the, the government see us together, they're going to really investigate you now. But that was the only meeting that the two of them had. Um, Malcolm X had intended to meet with King in 1965 uh, when King was in jail. Malcolm X went to Selma, Alabama in 1965, February 3rd or 4th of 1965. And he was going to go to jail to to the jail and visit King. But uh, I don't know what plans happened, but some plans happened that uh, that changed um, their positions. But, you know, now that you bring Malcolm X up, it's kind of interesting because the two men, in a way, uh, moved closer together. Um, than what people realize, you know. And uh, Malcolm X's early career, he was quite, you know, anti-white. Um, you know, viewed whites as devils. He believed that blacks and whites should separate, and so forth and so on. And in 1964, uh, 64, he broke with the Black Muslim movement and became independent. And then once he uh, began to reevaluate his own thinking, he began to support the idea of racial brotherhood. Um, and he believed in racial brotherhood. Um, and so he moved more towards King's be- belief in racial brotherhood and harmony from his early beliefs. And interestingly, um, the last year of King's life, King moved in a way toward some of Malcolm X's views in a sense that... Uh, Malcolm X believed that the uh, civil rights movement should be elevated to the level of human rights for all. And that's kind of what King began to preach toward the end of his life. So the two men really, uh, when you look at it, have a lot in common. Uh, Now, I know that um, people look at them differently. Um, They never changed. uh, For instance, Malcolm X never changed his fundamental belief that blacks had a right to physically defend themselves against um, violence by whites, and King never changed his belief in nonviolence. But that's where they differed. And yes, Malcolm X did attack King uh, at one point earlier in his career, but I think that towards the end it changed, and both men really respected each other, I believe.
3: I'm curious, Mohammed, what you think about the legacy how can I put it, of fear that blacks could have as a result of Dr. King's death. We know, of course, that that was something stated when Barack Obama became president and was running for president. And I think they were it was probably more widely believed that something might happen to him than not. Um, and I, I was wondering what you think young black men and women think today and how you feel his death uh, affected the civil rights movement and their hopes and dreams we all know that they were crushed because they didn't because he didn't live to realize everything that he worked for but do you still think that there is a lingering legacy of of fear or or uh, that or in any way does this hold um, young black americans back
2: i don't i don't think that that's the case now. Um, I think that um, we've come a long way since 68 uh, in a lot of ways. I mean, there are still economic disparities. There are still discrimination and things like that. But I think for the most part, um, we have realized a lot of what Dr. King wanted. Uh, it is unfortunate that neither he nor Coretta Scott King uh, lived to see the election of Barack Obama. In fact, it's kind of interesting because um, I spoke about the Kennedys tonight. Um, In 1967 or 68 when um, Robert Kennedy was running for president, a reporter asked him, you know, did, did he think that they would ever have a black president of the United States? And he said, yes, I think within 50 years it'll happen. Well, actually, he was 10 years off. It was 40 years, but it did happen.
4: Well, you know, uh, there was a lot, you know, of of things that really went on back then in the 60s, a lot of of turbulence, a lot of, uh, you know, and and back around 60, you mentioned about Nixon and uh, King, and uh, I think probably Nixon wanted to support King because I think probably they wanted the black, vote, uh, because blacks used to be Republicans up until Roosevelt's time, and and then uh, Kennedy wanted to support King and, uh, and get the black vote, but then uh, I think he didn't want to displease the the white Southerners, who I think at that time were more Democrat than Republican at that particular time, because up until the 50s, I think They believed in an oligarchy of one-party rule, which was in the South was Democrat because, because the Republicans were uh, freed the slaves back in
1: Civil War times. Well, you know, one of the reasons that I think reading about the 1957 Civil Rights Bill, uh, that its most um, the most detailed description of it is, of course, in the book um, Lyndon B. Johnson, Master of the Senate, and I can never remember the author. Um, but the Republicans and Democrats were actually trying to position themselves as far back as 1957 uh, in that civil rights bill to to get command of of the black vote, and the Democrats won. Uh, They had a better bill. Uh, The Republican version of that bill, which was basically uh, to establish uh, the means by which uh, businessmen and civil rights leader could, you know, just jawbone each other without any legal um, teeth in, in, in the outcome of that, of, of that kind of negotiating. Uh, it was just too weak. And the Democrats, under Lyndon Johnson, established a capacity for uh, requiring that The results of investigations where there was discrimination should be punished. And that was the major difference between the two bills. And uh, I, I don't have any doubt that generally the Republicans, uh, going back to Lincoln, and of course even in Lincoln's time there was a lot of disagreement that some people charged uh, Lincoln with being an abolitionist and he never was an abolitionist. We've talked about that before. Um, I think the Republicans were genuine. A lot of Republicans were genuine because the party was very different then. I mean, you had you had people like uh, Jacob Javits and Nelson Rockefeller, and Richard Nixon was was pretty moderate on you know uh, on, on civil rights um, and 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 even Ike to some extent, but um, only to some extent. <coughs> but uh, still, I think the Republican Party was genuinely open not only to having blacks as a constituency, but to serving blacks. I think the, 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 the uh, desire was genuine, but the, but the Democrats had a better law, and uh, so therefore the Democrats got credit for being greater champions of civil rights than, than the Republicans. And of course back then they had not only Lyndon Johnson, they had Paul Douglas of Illinois, they had Hubert Humphrey, uh, who were very, very strong uh, in, in pro-civil rights. Um, I'm going to ask a question. Uh, one of the names that was involved in that effort to free Dr. King oh, you wouldn't doc- yeah, I guess he was Dr. King. To free Dr. King at that time was uh, Harrison Wofford. Uh, I think he was in the Kennedy campaign. In fact, during his um, speech in 2008, his eloquent speech in 2008 uh, I'm talking about Barack Obama. Uh, Harrison Wofford was the person that introduced him. Uh, do you know anything about Harrison Wofford? I know very little. You might know more.
2: Actually, no. I, I know that he's the one who <clears throat> convinced uh, John F. Kennedy to contact Coretta Scott King. Um, he's the one who told him, hey, look, you need to contact her, you know, um, try to see what we can do to help her. But, no, I mean, I, I actually, truthfully, um, I never ran across the name until I um, was doing more research for uh, my talk tonight.
3: Leonard. Not-
5: this is Carla I really enjoyed your talk I I have to admit that I was born and raised in Birmingham but I was only 10 years old when a lot of the stuff that happened there happened and I really didn't understand a lot of it that was going on and just by hearing bits and pieces of what family said and talked about I was very confused I remember when the little girls were killed in the church and how sad I felt because they were little girls just like I was and and I didn't understand a lot of it but you taught me some stuff tonight that I did not know and I really appreciated it it I wasn't sure what your talk was gonna be. on. I mean, I knew what it was going to be on, but exactly what you were going to say, but I just want to say I thoroughly enjoyed it. And thank you for talking to us.
2: Well, I, I appreciate uh, what you had to say, ma'am. And yeah, you know, that whole Birmingham thing was um, uh, really unfortunate. You are right. You know, that the four little girls that were killed um, in the church in September of 1963, um, they were all between 10 and uh, 13 <clears throat> which I, I think you said you were 10 at the time so I guess they were around your age.
6: Um, thank you Mohammed very much for this uh, wonderful talk and I hope you continue this. I hope this will be a, uh, an ongoing uh, series. Uh, I just wanted to mention Viola Liozzo who is from... Uh, my area, I live in Michigan, and she gave her life in 1965, uh, for civil rights, and, uh, uh, she died with with some other people down in, I believe it was Alabama. Um, I was also, um, let's see, I would have been, in fact, I think it's, uh, February, I don't remember the exact date, but I think I would have been, uh, 12, um. when, when she lost her life, and uh, so there were people up here in, in the North that were interested in civil rights. I just wanted to say, Mohammed, that I think it takes great
3: courage for someone to be strong enough to begin to bring about change. And when I was a teenager, I really admired Martin Luther King, and still do because he knew what he was going to possibly be sacrificing. He knew how bad it could get, and he paid with his life. One of the things that I remember hearing when I was a teenager, and I don't know whether it was ever true, and I remember much earlier in my life reading some of Martin Luther King's work, and I was too young to understand it, I think. It was really way over my head, even at that point. But his writing is very beautiful and very elegant, And I remember hearing one time, um, as we do so many times with famous people, that uh, possibly he was suspected of um, some plagiarism. I don't remember where I heard that, but I wanted you to talk about that, and and was that ever true? In
2: 1990, the Washington Post printed an article uh, which basically purported that Martin Luther King uh, plagiarized um, his doctoral dissertation uh, and that he plagiarized... Um, other things, other papers uh, while he was in college. Uh, the Martin Luther King Papers Project, uh, which is run by Claiborne Carson, it's uh, out in Stanford, California, <clears throat> they did a, uh, an exhaustive uh, examination uh, of the whole plagiarism charge, and it was concluded that, yes, that he had plagiarized um, his doctoral dissertation, um, that that another student, he plagiarized um, a uh, doctoral dissertation written by another student five years earlier, and um, a lot of what he wrote in his doctoral dissertation was almost verbatim that the other student wrote, and he didn't give attribution to that student. Um, They accused him of plagiarizing his I Have a Dream speech from uh, a black minister um, of the 1950s. And I have read the speech by dr king and by the other minister um where they say he plagiarized his i have a dream speech and um i you know there was there are similarities but i would definitely not say that it was plagiarism but yes his doctoral dissertation was plagiarized and many other papers that he wrote while in college were plagiarized and so um plagiarism the charge of plagiarism is an accurate Charge.
4: Well, this has been quite an, this chapter has been quite an education tonight.
7: I just want to say that civil rights has been a problem since way back in the times of Lincoln, uh, as Ed pointed out a while back, and slavery and whatnot. And It was. Even an issue in back in 1956. I know that for a fact because I was involved in a project in school and I had to write my own speech. I was Eisenhower in a school play, and my teacher also had me send a copy of my speech to Eisenhower, of which he replied. Uh, to stating to me that he was going to use uh, some of my speech that I was using in the play in his campaign and uh, the main thing that I was stressing was the uh, the freedom of the Negroes in the South and. Uh, giving them their rights to go to the schools that they wanted to go to and anyway later on uh, some uh, what almost 50 years later um, I got a phone call and uh, right now sitting in the National Archives in Washington D.C is a copy of my letter to Ike and a copy of his letter to me in the public vaults uh, display at the National Archives.
0: And I would be interested in hearing that, John. Sometime you ought to read that to us.
1: Wow, what, uh, you've got your little niche in history, Mr. Boyer. Congratulations.
8: Just a second, he's just got to put it in front of him and he'll start reading it right now. In fact, he doesn't have to read it. He knows it, both letters, by heart.
3: Well, if they're parts of history, and they certainly are, I think sometimes just pride in writing, golden moments like that, and they are golden, they're they're the height of of wonder and creativity and I think maybe maybe they do deserve to be remembered um, I think any person who writes probably can tell you that there is one thing they wrote that they really felt very deeply they could probably recite from heart and I'm really fine with that I think that's absolutely wonderful
7: that's why I couldn't recite any of it. <laughs> uh. I didn't even recognize my letter when I went uh, when they had the uh, opening of the public vaults uh, in 2004 at the archives. Uh, in fact, I think that my letter was longer than maybe they just put part of my letter uh, in the archives, but uh, the original letter. From uh, from Ike to me is right here in my house. And I bet you can recite it too.
4: It would be wonderful to hear one day when you have a chance. I think it would too. Uh, I believe so. One time, a teacher told me I don't know 30, 40 years ago that uh, when uh, Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address, they 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 said people said it was quite boring because Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln did not have a good speaking voice uh, said it was kind of high and and uh, whatever but you, they say back then it wasn't considered a good speaking voice
1: Well the problem with the Lincoln, with the Gettysburg address is that he followed Edward Everett, who by the way was Millard Fillmore's Secretary of State uh, late in his term um, had given it two our speech, and Lincoln got up and gave his short address, and uh, it dealt it dealt in very broad terms. I mean, it, it didn't it didn't. If you you read it, it's a beautiful speech. It's probably better better to read, maybe. Although, wouldn't you love to hear Lincoln's voice? That would have been wonderful. But anyway, uh, it was a philosophical speech. You know, it, it encompassed the whole situation in, in, in so few words. And when he finished, there was everybody thought, "Wow, he's only spoken for three minutes! <laughs> goodness, is he really done?" And uh, there was a there was a pause, and, uh, and then of course there were applause, as, as should have been. But uh, that's yeah, that that <clears throat> that was an a distant astounding speech when you read it.
0: Oh yeah, that's fantastic. Uh- an interesting discussion of history and such uh, different speakers how they would sound however this program is uh, regarding Mohammed and regarding uh, Martin Luther King jr so if we can keep at least on topic for a little while longer are there any more questions to Mohammed about his talk tonight
8: I just want to say Mohammed my name is John uh, I really enjoyed your speech tonight and found it very informative I um, I remember the march on Washington, um, in 60, was it 65, 66, I forget, but I was almost going to go down to the march in Selma, Alabama, um, but I was not able to do that, but I wanted to, um, and I've always, um, Well, part of the the civil rights thing, it has always disappointed me up until ADA was um, enacted that the disabled weren't included in with the whole civil rights bills.
2: Yeah, I remember when the ADA thing came up, um, one of the things that the NFB was trying to uh, get done was to include... um, disabled people in Title IV of the Civil Rights Bill of 1964 instead of having a separate um, civil rights bill uh, for the disabled. Um, I supported it back then but I'm not quite sure where I stand today on that.
4: I don't know either. I mean, uh, probably a lot of the blind back in the late 60s when you had all these demonstrations, I don't know if a lot of them would have wanted to have been a a part of that whole thing back then. Uh, I know it got pretty wild there <laughs> in the late '60s.
1: Uh, Muhammad, talk a little bit about the effect, if you know anything about it. Uh, his having received the Nobel Peace Prize in in 1964. Uh, did that? What what kind of an effect did that have? It made him more of an international figure, certainly. Uh, but do you know anything about um, his, associ- his, his broader associations throughout the world once, the, once he'd received the Nobel Peace Prize?
2: Yeah, he received the Nobel Peace Prize on uh, December 10, 1964, um, and yes, uh, in fact it was, and I guess I should have brought that up in my talk, it was his receiving the Nobel Peace Prize that pushed him more onto the international scene. Um, You know, King had toured Africa um, in the late 50s um, and uh, Asia, Africa and Asia in the late 50s. And um, he never wanted to uh, bring other countries into the affairs of the United States because he felt that, you know, that would be meddling, I mean, it shouldn't be done. But for the most part, um, King mostly just toured these other countries. I don't think he really did much. Uh, do, you, are you, uh, do you mean connections he might have had uh, in these other countries? Is that what you're referring to?
1: Yes, I mean once he received the Nobel Peace Prize, you know he wouldn't be just a tourist or just a citizen. You know, he, he was he was um, he was a celebrity, an international celebrity, and I was just wondering. Uh, I certainly don't know who he met or who influenced him behind, beyond what what you said about Nehru. And actually, I didn't know about that until you said it. Um, I was just wondering if, if if there were other people who who influenced him. I mean, uh, I assume he never met Nelson Mandela. Um, and I'm just trying to think of, of other people. Um, I assume he must have had enough with uh, Pope Paul VI. I'd be surprised if he didn't.
6: Guys entered
1: the room. Um, I, I'd, I'd just be interested to know, and I certainly don't know, and it's certainly understandable if you don't know, but I would... I mean, I can see how that, you know, made him an international figure as opposed to being he in was fact, left room as opposed to being, you know, primarily a, 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 an American celebrity.
2: Well, actually, King did not travel outside of the United States after receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, um, he, he mostly stayed in the United States once he returned from uh, Oslo, Norway. Um, most of the international people he met with were like Kwame Nkrumah, uh, Jomo Kenyatta. Um, He met with uh, Nehru as I mentioned. Um, Most of the people he met with uh, on the world stage happened prior to his receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. After receiving the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, he did not travel outside the United States, at least not to my knowledge.
1: Okay, what I understand. One of the things you haven't supplied us with tonight, and I'm now going to ask you, and I know you'll supply it, uh, what books should we read?
2: Well, it's based on what you're into. Uh, If you want to read a quickie biography of King, um, you can read... um, When I say quickie, I mean like, you know, a book that's not all that in-depth. You can read a book by Stephen B. Oates called Let the Trumpet Sound. Um, That was published in 1982. Uh, If you want to read a book that's a little bit more um, detailed, uh, you can read a book by um, David J. Garrow called Bearing the Cross. And if you're really brave and you want to read uh, a 3,000-page book uh, on King, um, you can read the three-volume set by... Taylor Branch. Uh, volume one is called Parting the Waters. Volume two is called um, Pillar of Fire, and volume three is called At Canaan's Edge. Um, those are the three, you know, best biographies of King. Now, of course, you know you can read um, the book written by his wife, Coretta Scott King, My Life with Martin Luther King Jr., which was published in 1972. Uh, you can read his father's autobiography called Daddy King, uh, that was written in 1980 or you can read his sister Christine's autobiography, Christine King Ferris. Her book, um, Growing Up with Martin Luther King Jr., which was published in 2009. I hope that's um, uh, a list that you guys could uh, enjoy.
8: Are these books available on uh, the BART site or on Bookshare?
2: Uh, Let's see. I know that... I know that... Now, now here's what's really funny. Uh, Bard is kind of weird about that. Bard has volumes one and two of the Taylor Branch three-volume biography. Not volume three, is not up there. But the Library of Congress has it. You can get it on tape. Um, uh, you can also get Stephen B. Oates' Let the Trumpet Sound on tape. Um, I, Coretta Scott King's book, I read it with RFB years ago. And interestingly, when RFB changed um, that book is no longer in its collection, um, but most of the books you can get from NLS uh, either on
1: Bard or on um, cassette. Thank you very much. Well, I want to step in here at this point. I I, I don't want to close off the discussion, but I just want to make it very, very, very clear. I'm very proud of you. Um, you've been a friend of mine. We, you know, in fact, in my introduction, I said we met, and I I think I made it. Reference about it's kind of ironic. We've met only on the telephone, and uh, I, I, I'm, I'm. But we've been friends for 11 years, and I hope we'll be friends for many more. I, I'm very proud. Do this again. You'll, you'll, whatever, you know. And, and we're always, we're always critics of of what we do. I mean, I know when I've done a presentation, I could tell you all the mistakes I made, um, and done an excellent job not only for a first timer but for some people who have done this a number of times it's it's, it's been a very, from my standpoint uh, it's been a very successful evening Uh, your lecture was terrific and I certainly concur with everybody else uh, when uh, I say I I hope you'll do more, Uh, we'll talk about it, I know we will And maybe we can fit it into a a larger concept. But, I mean, uh, Martin Luther King, the man in the myth, is a good way to begin. And you should be very, 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 Muhammad, very proud of yourself. Because I certainly am.
3: I agree with what Ed has just said. And I think what's really interesting about what you did tonight, Muhammad, is that many times when people talk about someone, they talk about that person's life. And I like that you concentrated, for the most part, on the myths. Because in any era with any person, in any time in history, myths grow up. It's part of what happens when someone is misunderstood, or even if they are understood. There are always people trying to make truths out of lies, and trying to, for their own agenda and for their own purposes, change what that person has done and what they tried to achieve and why. And I think that it's great that you concentrated on telling us what was true, because it, I think, opens up a door to telling us a great many more things. And I'm all for you continuing this as well. But I think you did a fantastic job. And I don't know you well, but let me also say that I'm very proud of you, too.
4: Well, Muhammad, I really enjoyed this tonight, and uh, I did, I was late because I had other things I had to do. But it, it's amazing how much uh, all this branched out into other areas of the civil rights movement. You know, with doc started with Dr. King and and the other people that were involved, and and also what's what's happening these days with uh, other groups. Uh, Yeah, demanding their civil rights I guess but I enjoyed it too Any further questions for Mohammed?
7: I just want to say that it was very interesting Um, I want to say that uh, we're all Americans and we all should be treated that way no matter what your color or religion Any other kind of backgrounds that one can think of. Uh, Man, woman, because even women have had problems as far as equality in the job place and whatnot. We're all good human beings.
2: Well, I just want to thank everyone for coming. I um, also want to thank Ed and Bonnie and everyone else who, uh, who, who enjoyed um, what I had to say. And, you know, I have to confess, I was extremely nervous. Um, and <clears throat> I know for, for me as an individual, I don't mind doing it again, but I doubt very seriously that I could do it live because I would be just too nervous. <laughs> I don't know how people who do it live can do that. I really don't. Um, I I, I mean, I admire those who can actually do something like this live. I couldn't. I just could not do it. And I've told Ed that a lot of
3: times.
8: Well, you did it live tonight, right?
3: Well, I think he had a, I think Muhammad had a pre-recorded presentation, and obviously the questions were live. And I think that it's good to find a venue that works for you and use it. I don't think there is any right or wrong. I think you should just do whatever you feel comfortable with. If it works and you're comfortable with it, you'll do a better job. Although I do think that for any person who does something live, it does get better with time. But sometimes it takes many times until it does. I'm sure Kurt would probably agree with me.
7: I would say that the way you did it tonight was perfectly fine. Uh, If that's what suits you best, you can do it the same way in the future.
8: Of course, Mohammed. you have to be comfortable in the way you do things and oh, one more thing to Ed and Mohammed, I was on eVoice voice too, I loved it, it was so much fun.
0: Okay, I think we should wind up this show so we can stop recording and make it part of the archives. I think, on behalf of Accessible World, I'll thank you, Mohammed, for the presentation and Ed for the announcing. And we certainly hope that you have another one in store for us, Mohammed. For goodness sake, you seem to be a fountain of knowledge, and certainly have the ability to construct it wisely. You have a pleasant evening, everybody here that's listening. I'd like to thank everybody who showed up tonight. All twelve. Now it's nine. <laughs> Been a real pleasure. Ed, you have a pleasant evening and i sincerely hope that you have another presentation for us coming up soon and muhammad i guarantee you, with all that knowledge i'm certain you have three four five or six or ten at least available for us so on behalf of accessible world and Baba Costa and everybody here i want to thank you and this is the conclusion of this presentation you can all stick around here and chat, and i'm going to stop recording